on the streets of the Bronx. There's a new initiative at Fordham University that's helping to tell the stories of Italians and Italian-Americans throughout the 20th century who called the Bronx their home. Good morning, I'm Robin Shannon, and today on Fordham Conversations, I'm joined by Dr. Kathleen LaPenta, Dr. Mark Nason, and Dr. Jacqueline Reich to discuss the Bronx Italian-American History Project. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. morning. So uh, can someone tell me, why is it important to record the oral history of Italian-American immigrants? I've been studying Bronx history for the last 20 years, focusing on the African-American experience. But you can't study the history of the Bronx um, without incorporating the Italian-American experience because their contribution to the culture and politics of the Bronx has been enormous. Just taking something like music, the whole phenomenon of doo-wop uh, in the 1950s, it was very heavily influenced by Italian-American singers, who many of whom came out of the Bronx. They were also the development of Bronx business districts, uh, of churches, um, and of the, the culture of the community reflected everything from film to boxing. I mean, you can't study f film in the Bronx without looking at the movie Marty. And, you know, uh, you have to look at Jake LaMotta and the Raging Bull. So you had a group of people who had a tremendous impact on the history of the Bronx as they've had of all of urban America, whose stories were not fully recorded. So. Now, the stories are are there, but what made you decide to do it this way? In an in, oral as an oral history? Pro yes. Well, the oral history comes out of the tradition of talking to individuals and getting their personal narratives in the way that in which those individuals speak about themselves and their own experiences, rather than um, appropriating that language into a book or into an academic study that in some way may still provide a transcript of what that individual has said, but doesn't do it with that person's voice and with that person's particular accent um, or way of speaking because of, of where he or she has yeah. grown up. And and we consider that to be a very important factor in investigating this history, um, primarily because there have been histories written of Italian-Americans. Rutledge just published the Rutledge Italian-American History uh, edition, which is a wonderful edition that complements this project, but doesn't necessarily hear from the everyday individual. There are also oral histories published by um, Alan Alda's wife, um, Arlene Alda. Alan Alda, um, they were just involved in a big oral history project that looks at notables from the Bronx and their childhoods and the way that they grew up. We also have, like uh, Mark talked about, the films that tell these stories. Is it almost like someone inter interviewing their, you know, grandma or grandpa? Yeah, there's very much an lines. intergenerational yeah. component to this. But there's something else here. There were Italian-American mm -hmm. neighborhoods, small Italian-American neighborhoods that had a very vital role in the history mm -hmm. of the Bronx that are, are going to be lost to history mm -hmm. because a historian is not going to track down Villa Avenue. Right or the Italian-American community in Melrose, or in Williamsbridge, or in Baychester. They'll write about Arthur Avenue. Mm -hmm. uh, but there were these small concentrations centered around Italian-American parishes, many of which lasted for 40 or 50 years. Mm -hmm. And I would like to see them, you know, recorded in history because 
people have these vivid memories of them, and they're never going to make it into history books if we don't get those stories told. Mm -hmm. Similarly, one of the things that we're trying to do is also take those neighborhoods like Arthur Avenue and Morris Park, which are so closely and still so closely identified as Italian-American, um, and kind of show how those neighborhoods have changed over time, but still retain their Italian-American identity. That, for us, is really important, right? So sort of not just looking at the past, but also kind of interrogating the present and seeing how racial makeups and ethnic makeups of neighborhood have changed, but how a kind of perception of a particular neighborhood remains the same. Can we have a little bit of a history lesson here? So what happened to the Italian-Americans in the Bronx? Where did okay. the families go? Well, I'll start at the beginning, and then maybe someone can take over. This is Jackie. Um, so one of the, the... So the Italians were the largest um, population of immigrants to come over during the big great wave of immigration between 1880 and 1920. And um, of those who settled in New York, most of them settled right on the Lower East Side in Manhattan. In about, like, the 20s and the 30s, you see them moving north a little bit to the Bronx, you know, in a sort of sense of moving up, moving out to the country, right? Because the Bronx at that time was not a, a you know, hugely gentrified area. So with this large population, you see a kind of, of diaspora out of, or migration out of Manhattan and into the other boroughs, mm -hmm. and they settled all over the Bronx, right? They weren't just, it's not like they just went to Belmont or they just went to Morris Park. Mm -hmm. You know, we have interviewed people from all over mm -hmm. the Bronx. Um, do you want they, to take it from well, here, Well, they Catherine? built, um, many Italians had, were living in the East 40s and in East Harlem, actually. A lot of people have told me that they ended up going to Soundview or to Morris Park, where originally their grandparents were in East Harlem, for example. And so um, a lot of workers and laborers in the early part of the 20th century built the Jerome Park Reservoir and were construction workers. They were tradesmen and um, ended up moving up here uh, because of that work. So they were um, making more money and they were able to They to were finding jobs. The they were able to move out of the city. I think there were workers' houses uh, that some of them were living in in the early part of the 20th century. Um, neighborhoods like Belmont and Williamsbridge it's right about 1906 when those neighborhoods get formed and when uh, individuals start either it's either Italian immigrants fr directly from Italy coming or it's Italian Americans, so to speak, coming from East Harlem and moving, as Jackie said, into the Bronx for more space. At that point, the Bronx was not part of New York City. Um, and and there were farms and they could have they could raise animals and they could have gardens. And uh, many of them have talked about this in their experiences with us. So that's the first part of the 20th century. And then kind of moving along in the 20th century, there are different kinds of neighborhoods that formed. Um, Morris Park is post-World War Two, kind of before 1950 is when um, that migration out of Manhattan happens. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon talking with Dr. Kathleen LaPinta, Dr. Mark Nason, and Dr. Jacqueline Reich about the Bronx Italian American History Project. It's a new initiative at Fordham University to gather oral histories of Italian and Italian Americans in the Bronx. The project is intended to paint a broader picture of what the Bronx looked like throughout the 20th century when it was the destination for many immigrants. When did the migration out of, out of the, the Bronx, Bronx start yeah, to happen? Yeah, right about 1960 is when we see that. Now, what I will say is that um, maybe what I didn't say before is that oral history is about human contact. 
and talking to individuals and hearing from them. And in speaking to so many individuals about this project who are interested in it, and in speaking with us further, they have shared that, for example, many of them have stayed in the Bronx, in their homes that their grandmother or their mother owned, right up until 2006, right? Many of them have inherited businesses from their fathers or their grandfathers that they kept running until they retired and their children decided not to continue. So this is not necessarily painting the picture of this mass migration up to Westchester or out to New Jersey or to Long Island, though we know for sure that demographically that took place. Um, a lot of the people coming in to talk to us are talking to us about ways in which their, they witnessed their neighborhoods change after 1960 and into the 60s, 70s, and 80s and what they experienced in that in those decades. How did you guys choose who you chose to interview for the Bronx Italian American History Initiative? Um, well, I'll, I'll first talk about um, how we interview, and then I'll let Kathleen, because Kathleen does most of the intake, and she gets mm -hmm. and she does that. So what we decided to do, let's say different from Mark's Bronx African American History Project, or different from a project like StoryCorps, is that we um, chose to film the interviews. So the interviews are about an hour and a half, hour to an hour and a half long, sometimes two hours. We have questions that guide us. We have the same set of questions that guide us. And we kind of have a conversation. We have uh, food. Uh, we have espresso. We try to create a comfortable atmosphere um, and let people talk. But we film the interviews as opposed to others that just record them. Yeah, we filmed probably about half of our okay. interviews. Yeah. Uh, so, But in the beginning, we didn't have the right. resources right. to do that. Right. So this is beginning with the filming and also the hospitality is really essential. Making people Absolutely. feel this is their space at Fordham, which is not mm -hmm. always viewed as community yes. space. Right. right. Oh, you so you're bringing them in from oh, the hallway, yeah. bringing oh, yeah. them here as opposed to finding them in their homes. And no, in fact, that's one of the ways in which we run this project is most individuals who come in for an interview, they contact us is what happens. And then I have an initial conversation with them about what it is we're trying to explore, uh, what it is, what it is they think they might bring to an interview to, um, so to speak, further knowledge about um, the Italian-American experience in the Bronx or in the United States or um, how they've witnessed that or experienced that in confrontation, living right in with other ethnicities, right, right next to neighbors who they consider to be their best friends who identify differently. Um, Kathleen, how do you get the word out there that hey, we you're have a families? <laughs> you know, it's not it's actually has not been hard. Um, we have a Facebook page. And a lot of our, uh, we have Instagram, Facebook, social media, a lot of our outreach is through the Facebook page. And then there are several different organizations that have picked up our story and publicized it on their own. And so we always ask, how did you learn about us? And so there's lots of different grapevines through which we travel. Um, there are lots of Facebook. I was just having a conversation with a woman on Long Island yesterday who was naming some of the Facebook organizations. If I want to reach out to yeah. them to get more people to interview, there's um, Villa Avenue groups who meet on Facebook who re who have reunions every year, they've been telling me. So, so it's not to invade these people's personal experiences or time, but to let them know that we would like yeah. to speak to them if they have an interest in coming in to speak we, speak with us. Uh, this is 
not a problem getting no. people to be interviewed. Yeah. It's finding enough time yeah, in the day. Yeah, exactly. When we began the Bronx African American History Project, the basic response, when are you going to interview us? Yeah, right. And <laughs> somebody described it as a snowball that became right. an avalanche. Yeah, right. And I see this moment. People want to tell these stories. Yeah, they do. They have mm. a powerful attachment to their experience growing up in the Bronx. So many people have this. Mm -hmm. We found this among African Americans. Mm -hmm. We're finding it among Italian Americans. And it's a beautiful thing to see. Mm -hmm. What do you have, 33 people volunteering? 33 new requests yeah, in the last two weeks. It'll get up to 100 by this. You know. yeah. I was going to say, had, how so many? So far, we've, we've had 20 interviews so far. And we probably, we've had 33 new requests since December, since November 20th. Um, are you looking it, for a cutoff? Like I only want a hundred. You know, right now, right now we're not. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. The Marx Project, the Bronx African American History Project, to give an example, has been running for fifteen years, and we've had about probably three hundred twenty-five yeah. interviews, right. and we'll end when the people's interest ends, right. mm -hmm. which exactly. may, maybe never. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's so exciting <laughs> to have people want to tell their stories in a way that enables us to see history and culture differently. Right. This is Jackie. Um, I think that this is really important that we stress that these are community-based oral history projects, right? They don't exist in a vacuum, right? And they have a particular purpose. And the purpose is not only to kind of preserve, right, to kind of sort of represent history with a small H, right, as opposed to a capital H, mm -hmm. right? But also to, you know, break down some of the barriers that have been, you know, erected around uh, racial communities in the Bronx and, you know, even around Fordham, right? About like, re this is about community outreach, right? This is about integrating the life of the Bronx into the campus. You have to realize that Fordham is like the city on a hill, right. the forbidden city. You ask a, a car service to take you to Fordham University, they're likely to take you to Fordham Road and University Avenue. <laughs> so making people who grew up in the Bronx feel at home at Fordham is a powerful gesture. And the, the, the espresso and the food and the way of questioning where their voice is what's important and where they talk about what they want to, it's a very powerful thing. It's remaking university culture as well as recording, you know, a more inclusive and democratic version of Bronx history. Mm -hmm. right. And what are you doing with the interviews? We're going to have um, an online archive, a digital archive. We're working. We're looking to do a kind of digital humanities project with the interviews, so that we have interviews made available to the public, where people from an area. What we've had a lot of is people identifying from a specific neighborhood, and Villa is the one that keeps coming to my mind. Uh, this is Kathleen, by the way. Uh, we would like to look at a mapping feature where people can look at look in their neighborhood and hear the respective stories of the other individuals who've come in for interviews. Uh, and to look at where are the enclaves of Italian-American culture forming over the course of the 20th century. I spoke before. In certain decades, they're in some places, and in certain decades, they kind of, I think, around 1940s, like Melrose, for example, disappears. Melrose is in the South Bronx as an Italian-American. They all moved north, right? Uh, Williamsbridge, Belmont, uh, those neighborhoods are more steadily Italian-American. Belmont has 
is the business center, right, has kind of commercialized itself as Italian-American in the Bronx and remains that way despite many other kinds of ethnicities that now live in the neighborhood. Uh, One of the interesting stories is how Italian-American businesses, Mm -hmm. especially restaurants, persist long after neighborhoods cease to be Mm Italian-American. So in a lot of Bronx neighborhoods, the Italian restaurant is the go-to place for graduations, weddings, celebrations. And so this community has played a continuing role in the Bronx, even after most of the Italian Americans have moved out. And and many of the the individuals who've moved out still tell us that they come down to shop down here. Yeah. Um, so they they still retain this sense of propriety over their area or their neighborhood, and they feel um, very close and never unsafe. They just, they feel at home in the Bronx, and they welcome the opportunity often to come to Fordham's campus and talk about that, how how wonderful it was to grow up in the Bronx, or what a unique experience it was to, to grow up amidst that, and to be able to open that up to Fordham undergraduates, Fordham yeah. University uh, researchers, for them is exciting. And, and to me, I guess it's also the music. I grew up in the 50s. I grew up mm-hmm. singing and listening to doo-wop. And of the white doo-wop performers, 90% were Italian-American. And we have a chance to tell that story mm-hmm. of the sometimes tense but sometimes cooperative relationship between African-American and Italian-American communities in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it's that's part of what we're doing. It's And, and it, it's a very complicated but very important story. Right. Sort of to go back what, this is Jackie, to go back what Kathleen was saying about what we want to do. So the first thing is this is going to oh. be an open access public archive, right? Because that's part of a kind of a, of a community-based project, right? It, it It's not just for scholars. It's for anybody who wants to access mm-hmm. it. So what we're also going to be doing, as, in addition to this kind of interactive digital map, where you could click on a corner for here and then you'll see excerpts from video interviews, Mm -hmm. is creating a searchable index of the videos. So let's say anytime someone mentions Dion, you'll get a reference to a particular timestamp of a particular interview, and you could go to that interview and hear what that person said about Dion, or Frank Sinatra comes up a lot, Mm -hmm. or um, other aspects of popular culture, right? So for us... That's really important. So even though we're all scholars, right, we're all, you know, academics, you know, our mission is not only to sort of further our own personal knowledge, but to create a resource for people, anyone Mm -hmm. to turn to who want to find out more about the Bronx. Yeah. I also hope that this uh, initiative is going to have public events on the Fordham campus to which people are invited. So for us in the Bronx African American History Project, a big moment was when we had all the doo-wop groups from Morrisania perform along with a jazz great Jimmy Owens. We expected 400 people, 800 people came. If we were to do like a Laurel Nero Dion retrospective, I don't think 
that we have a place big enough at Fordham to hold the people who would come. Right. And that would be something important for our students to see mm-hmm. yeah. as well. Important. One thing with the Bronx African, every event we organize is free and open to the public. We say to security, anybody from the community who wants to come should be let in. So and it's I, really important to be able to have the community be able to feel like they're a part of it's Fordham. Exactly. It's essential. And I and I I can also speak to interest from undergraduates on that, um, from our students who are um not all of the students we work with are of Italian American descent. So as we're we work with all different kinds of students and uh promote this project with all the students of Fordham and they're particularly interested in this kind of community contact, right? This connection to they've chosen to come to school in the Bronx and they see the paradox of having a perfectly clean green lawn amidst the surrounding neighborhoods that might not have any perfectly clean, clean green lawns anymore. Um, and so the students are very engaged in this kind of uh, contact or this kind of connection that they feel with the surrounding community, with the Bronx. Um, this is Jackie. I want to just sort of jump in. What's really funny is this whole notion of Fordham sort of being this uh, isolated fortress on a hill is actually historically grounded. We've mm-hmm. talked to people who, Italian-Americans who grew up here in the 40s, and uh, the 50s who said, oh, no, you just could not go anywhere near campus. Mm-hmm. You know, we were the undesirables. You know, mm-hmm. we were yeah. there. Um, I also want to talk about. But that culture's changing. Obviously. It has changed. I mean, there's also people who to not to contradict what Jackie said, but there are also people who remember as children coming to collect chestnuts in the chestnut trees on campus when there used to be chestnut trees on campus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's lots of different kinds of stories of that. There's also the tradition of Fordham Prep. And that had some of the first Italian-American students, the archivist and I have been talking about the early part of the 20th century and the Italian-American students that were at the prep that then went on to Fordham. So there's, even though the numbers are small, you know, there's one or two or three students at the prep at that point, there it still demonstrates this up-and-comingness of the community as the number of yeah. Italian-American students increase at Fordham Prep, it, just, it reflects these families who can afford to send their children to a more prestigious school. And what you're just hearing right now is, Robin, is the beauty of oral history, right? Is that we'll get one story from someone mm-hmm. and a whole different contradictory story <laughs> from another, right? And it's not to say one is right or wrong, right? It's all about memory. And it's all how people remember. Mm-hmm. And some people will remember differently than others. But there's, there's also one of the things that we learned during, in the Bronx African American History Project is you never know what people are going to say yeah. in an interview. And sometimes it's shocking. Mm-hmm. I've sat in in probably seven or eight of the interviews and a couple of the people spoke about being abused mm-hmm. in their school, because, you know, right. being deluged with slurs. Uh, because they were Italian-American and being treated, you know, very, very badly by their teachers. Uh, And I think we forget that there was significant discrimination that Italian-Americans experienced in American society up until probably the the late 50s and 60s. Even the 80s, a lot of people would say. Really? Mm-hmm. So was there anything shocking that came from some of the interviews you've already done for the uh, Bronx Italian-American History uh, Initiative? Yeah, I mean, there were people talking about being beaten in school and mm-hmm. called WAP and Guinea and mm-hmm. worthless. And I didn't think people of even younger than me were subject to that. Mm-hmm. I would have yeah. thought you'd get in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. I wouldn't have thought it would have happened in, in the, the 50s 60s. and 60s. Mm-hmm. So... 
that to me was a shock. You know, it was it was pretty powerful. And on the website, you say that the uh, the Bronx Italian American History Initiative investigates the racialization of Italian Americans as white. So can you sort of explain what that means? And and uh, I have to ask, are you saying Italians weren't considered Caucasian or they weren't considered white at one point in history? Uh, exactly right. When they came in the first part of the 20th century, they were not considered well, they were in their naturalization papers. They're marked as white with the dark complexion yeah, in that part of the century when the when they were doing that kind of census data, and they were with other Southern Europeans. There's lots of characterizations in 1891 is one of the most famous cases that doesn't take place in New York, but that takes place in New Orleans, Louisiana, where 11 Sicilians were lynched because they had been found guilty of murdering the Irish police chief. At, but as late as 1924, an Italian-American woman who married an African-American man in Alabama was not included under the anti-miscegenation right, cause because right, Italian-Americans right. weren't considered sufficiently white right, right. to be classified under this. If I can make a clarification, right? So what was based on different kind of pseudoscientific discourses and other theories of race in uh, the early 19th and uh, late 19th and early 20th century, um, basically what happens is a national identity is often equated with a racial identity. They, you find a lot of documents that refer to the Italian race as opposed to the Italian nation. Uh, Jacob Rees, for instance, talks about the Italian race in his works. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is different from, shall we say, color. Right. So while Italians were not considered white in the sense, what do we mean by white? We mean by um, a kind of fit for self-government. Right. A kind of notion that who is it? Matthew. God, I can't remember. Fry Jacobson. Right. Right. Matthew Fry Jacobson. Right. That's what he talks about. He's a historian at Yale um, about them being fit for self-government. So while their skin. Right. Color may have been white. They were racialized and considered mm -hmm. non-white. And, and so that's it really isn't until um, after the war. Right. Because so many Italians fought in World War Two. And we've interviewed um, mm -hmm. a couple of mm -hmm. uh, veterans as well. It's been fascinating. Um, there's a great story, Kathleen, about the guy. Uh, one of them told a story about um, this Italian, his friend who was sent to Sicily because mm -hmm. he had an Italian last name because they thought that he, he would be translate. he would translate, but he knew no Italian, <laughs> right? So they would, and they did send a lot of Italian American soldiers, right, to Italy. Mm -hmm. Thinking, assuming, assuming, right, that they spoke Italian. Mm -hmm. But what we find is that most of that first generation of Italian Americans who are born here, um, their parents don't speak Italian to them, right? That mo no, many of them, yeah, absolutely, many not. of them are just totally schooled in English. And if they know anything, they know dialect, right? Their regional dialect. Mm -hmm. After World War II, what we see is this um, move into prosperity of Italian Americans on um, and an increased integration into what it is to be American. Now, a lot of the interviews also talk about that conversation happening in their family. What does it mean to be an American? For some people, it means using ketchup uh, or eating ketchup. <laughs> right. Wait, wait, I got to hear that. Yeah. What is that story? How did that, what does uh, that it's mean? Just, it's conversations that evolve around food and what 
are the different food traditions of different types of ethnicities. And Italians, as we know, have a wonderful food tradition. And on Sundays, uh, the mothers and the grandmothers spend all day sa- Saturday making pasta, laying a sheet on the on the bed. And they dry the pasta out, and then on Sunday morning they wake up and they make the sauce, and maybe they go to Mass, maybe they don't. They're not all practicing Catholics. Uh, But they inevitably host, in one of the homes, they host a large family meal. And uh, in talking about these different traditions that also are different within, depending on where the which region of Italy the family comes from, there is this conversation about, well, what does it mean to be American? It means to eat American. So it means to eat ketchup on your hot dog or ketchup (laughs) on your hamburger, right, to be able to have ketchup on French fries. And that is something that is distinctively non-Italian. So I'm American if I have ketchup on my food. Yes, exactly right. Exactly (laughs) right. Um, And so there's this whole question about using ketchup. Uh, But I was saying that um, the move into prosperity after World War II, many of them benefit from the GI Bill. They're able to purchase homes um, out of the city or larger homes that are further up north even, um, and then they uh, eventually are they are able to benefit from a lot of the uh, the um, the social changes that come about with uh, Roosevelt. What is it called? New this? Deal. New Deal. Thank you. <laughs> um, and then the GI Bill. And so they move into this pr- prosperity. They can get home mortgages. Their neighborhoods aren't redlined. They are considered white at this point. And so they're able to move up the social ladder. Now, can I ask, they're, they're now considered white because they have socialized as American? Well, it's a little more complicated yeah. than that. We'll have to stop right there, but tune in next week for more of the Bronx Italian American Initiative with Drs. Nason, Reich, and Lapenta. You can also find out more about the project online or on the Facebook page of the Bronx Italian American Initiative. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. Come on.